This is the Scoop Duck Podcast. You work so hard to get to that moment, and I know it, it all culminates at one time, but the reality is that was a lot of hard work over a lot of time. Every game, every story. Very appreciative to all the hard work that's gone in to not just today, but um, the last signing period and kind of falling pieces together. It's, it's a pretty exciting time for us. The Scoop Duck Podcast. Scoop Duck and High Five, Matt Bagley and Justin Hopkins, and normally we get together the day after signing day we do a podcast i think we do that on early signing day now just the way the world works so nothing from us last week but that doesn't mean we weren't working i was doing a bunch of stuff on the radio justin was was writing like mad on scoop duck and now we get a chance to uh put our heads together and talk about what we saw so signing day in the rearview mirror how do you feel I know Oregon took a drop. Oregon's not in the top five or top ten in those rankings, uh, but still number one in the Pac-12. Is that good enough for Dan Lanning's Ducks? Yeah, it, it is, and it is uh, because of one big. Well, okay, there's two reasons. You know, first of all, um, you know, time wasn't on his side with that early signing period, so I, I think he did a really good job of of keeping everything uh, held together there, getting a few guys to sign. Uh, but then really doing some terrific work, kind of doubling back. You know, we see, you know, I know we'll get into it, but you see a guy like Jaleel Florence jump back in the mix. That's a, you know, that's a top 100 level kind of guy, a cornerback, a guy you really need, um, you know, kept USA, USC from landing him, uh, you know, did a really good job making sure that uh, getting Dave Ayuli, uh back in the mix as well. Um, you know, Mario Cristobal in Miami tried really hard to, uh, you know, to get him to look back that direction. USC was trying really hard, but wasn't getting much traction. Um, you know, got uh, in-state linebacker Amari and Winston uh, back in the fold. These are all guys that decommitted at one point that that, that recommitted later on. Um, I think that says a lot about Coach Lanning and his vision and, and what he was able to kind of sell them, you know, on the program. Um, you know, I love some of the, the pieces that he added. But what I what I want to go by, that the second point, you know, the other part to this is, you know, to me, there was no bigger job for Dan Lanning than keeping the talent already in Eugene, in Eugene. And I think that, you know, by and large, sure, there were a couple of players that, you know, elected to move on uh, and play elsewhere this next season. But he did a really good job making sure that the, you know, the the Noah Sewells and Justin Flows and Troy Franklins and, and those guys that are really kind of your cornerstones of, of the program that you're going to build stayed in Eugene. So, uh, I think he signed a safe number of players, um, you know, because, again, you're working with that 85 scholarship limit. I think he signed a safe number where he doesn't have to go in and 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 try to, you know, push a bunch of kids out or or talk a bunch of kids into transferring, which is, is kind of part of this business, but really hard for a first year head coach to do. Um, and, you know, now he brought some good pieces in uh, in in, you know, in December and in February there. And uh, it certainly feels as though this 2023 class is, is going to be something special for sure. Yeah, and I think the emphasis has to be put there. Like you said, you know, fans might say, hey, why don't we get 30 new transfers and, and why don't we just totally clean up and, and shore up every issue on this team? Well, he's only been the coach for a month and a half, right? He's got to that, – that's going to take time. Um, where is the 2023 class, in your mind, going to go better than this one? Um, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, they're just kind of going from the, from the 2022 list. Um, I, I think the number one miss, uh, well, how do I want to phrase this right? Oregon at one point when Mario Cristobal was here, had a quarterback committed in Tanner Bailey. They ended up not signing a prep quarterback, obviously took Bo Nix as a transfer. I think Bo, I think in a perfect world, you know, Coach Lanning would have been fortunate to get Bo Nix and then also get a prep recruit that would, you know, have that year to develop and then come in and compete after Bo Nix is gone. Because I, I think almost no matter what, Bo Nix is here for a year. I know he has two years of eligibility, but I think he's here for a year. So if we take him out of the equation and we, you know, push ourselves forward to next year, uh, at the moment, you're currently down to Ty Thompson and Jay Butterfield. Those guys are good players. Those are two good quarterbacks to have. I'm not knocking them. But two quarterbacks is not enough. So I was not all that high on Tanner Bailey, so I don't consider that 
particular part a huge miss for Oregon, but in a perfect world, you know, maybe you'd been fortunate to sign a guy, you know, in particular from out West that's maybe in that, you know, top 150 range, uh, you know, something along the lines there. I think that's something that, that Oregon needs. Um, you know, Oregon did a really good job, uh, particularly Coach Lanning and Coach Lachlan, you know, getting Jordan James as a running back, a late signee in February. You know, the one-time Georgia commit, I like him, good player. He's looking good. Uh, that running back room was stocked. It was absolutely stacked. Uh, but, you know, you had C.J. Verdell go to the NFL as expected. You had Die decide to go play his uh, next year at USC. Uh, and then Trey Benson obviously jumped in the portal uh, over to FSU. So you got three backs. Um, that's not – it's not super light, but it's not especially deep either. You're kind of right in between there. So I think that's going to be a point of emphasis in this 2023 class. Uh, wide receiver, another one. I think wide receiver at one point, uh, off the top of my head, I think Oregon had four or five receivers committed at one point in this class, was looking good for Kevin Coleman, probably could have had Darius Clemens, had uh, Mario Cristobal not left. You know, they were looking pretty stacked at the position. Uh, you know, they ended up signing Justice Lowe, and I love that signing. I think that's great, but that's one receiver. Um, so they're definitely going to need to, you know, identify – uh, two, three, possibly even four guys that they really like at receiver. I think this is going to be a really big, uh, you know, class for them and for that position group. So, um, as always, you continue to stockpile edge players, uh, you know, defensive linemen, um, offensive linemen. Um, you know, they were lucky to get Kavika Rogers late. You know, he's a project. I think Michael Wooten is identified as a project, but Oregon's fairly young. At offensive line, so I think they're okay there. So I guess my point is, I think you're going to see a lot of offensive work in this cycle. Um, you know, quarterback is absolutely paramount. I can't stress that enough. It's the most important one right now uh, is getting a good quarterback, not only because of the player, but the position um, and what that will do for recruiting. Uh, and then I think you need a lot of skill guys um, on offense to, you know, I think we, I think we see just from from the guys that have visited in January, I think you're seeing a bigger push for speed. You know, guys with speed, guys with, you know, kind of that top end speed, able to, you know, take it to the house. Uh, I think that's an element that Oregon is missing a little bit is just just having that elite speed that that that, uh, you know, Georgia and Alabama and some of those other schools really have. So that seems to be the emphasis um, with the way they finished out the corner and safety recruiting. Sure, they're going to need to sign a couple guys this year, but it's not going to be a huge issue because they did close really well at that position. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned how there's a little more emphasis right now on the offensive side in terms of the recruiting hours and the recruiting effort. Um, it, it makes me wonder, when you look at the, the defense that Dan Lanning inherits and the offense that Kenny Dillingham inherits, is it fair to say that defense better fits coach Lanning's system than the offense does. Yeah, that could be fair. I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, I, I, I hope, I guess we both hope that they're obviously going to tailor, uh, you know, their, their offense and their defense to the, the skill they have, the players they have, uh, available. But yeah, I think on the surface with what they were able to do and the way they were able to close out, um, you know, you look at the defense and I think, Hey, there's some pieces there that, that Dan Lanning, uh, and his crew are going to be familiar with, um, you know, for, for coach Dillingham though, I will say this, I believe that overall, um, three things I really like for the offense for coach Dillingham, a bringing in Bo Nix is a guy that's going to understand elements of his system. They're going to ha- they're going to be familiar with one another. Uh, they're going to work well together. I really like that addition. I think it just makes a lot of sense. Sure. Caleb Williams going to USC and some of these other things, those are headliner moves, but you know, that was a really smart calculated move for Oregon, I believe. And I think that helps uh, the offensive fit. Secondly, uh, you know, FSU ultimately hasn't, doesn't have a ton of talent. They really haven't been that good at football. I think Kenny Dillingham's walking into a much deeper group on offense and much more talent than he was working with at, at FSU. I think Coach Clem, Adrian Clem coming in and effectively keeping a lot of those pieces of the offensive line together and returning, um, you know, getting Bass to come back, getting Sala to stay at Oregon and come back to Oregon, you know, all basically all your starters except for George Moore. That's a huge piece as well. So, mm-hmm. 
you know, there's a lot to like there. I, I do think you're right. Probably favors defense a little bit more, but overall this should fit everybody uh, pretty well on both sides for yeah. the most part. Yeah. Um, you talk about the importance of getting a quarterback. We, we all kind of, I think now, now that Mario Cristobal is in the rearview mirror at Oregon, we all kind of have an idea of Cristobal's type with quarterbacks. He likes guys that are, are dual threats. He likes uh, maybe you don't have a cannon for an arm necessarily, but you're crafty on third down and you can scramble out of pressure. Um, does Kenny Dillingham and, and does Dan Lanning have a type that they're looking for for the Oregon quarterback? Um, you know, I, I don't know because, I, you know, if you look at, at, at Dillingham, uh, you know, just kind of what he's done the last two or three, or three years between, you know, Auburn and Florida State, and and memphis being involved there i i think that they do like um a guy that maybe is a little bit more of a, of a thrower um less of a runner but somebody that can stretch a play out you know and and again uh you know anthony brown is the opposite of the anthony brown's kind of a run first quarterback obviously throwing uh inconsistent there you know i think bo nix has the ability to run the football, but it's really not a strength of his game. He's going to be more, you know, of your drop back passer, keeping his eyes downfield and, and probably scrambling or running just to keep a play alive. Um, you know, so yeah, I, I think that that is probably more of what he would prefer in this offense. And I, and, and again, I think obviously, you know, going and getting uh, Bo Nix really kind of accompanies that. Okay. Um, with uh, with regards to the um, the 2023 class, is is it a reasonable expectation to say this class needs to be top ten again? Good, good question. Um, you know, I mean, obviously, if you're talking to me and and off the cuff, I'm gonna say, hey, look, you know, Oregon, Oregon really needs to. Sp- to stay as competitive as they want to with those elite schools, you need to be, you need to be recruiting somewhere inside the top 10. It could be eight. It can be nine. You can even kind of bump it up to 11 or 12 here and there. Um, But I think that, you know, kind of based with, with this class that Oregon signed uh, just now uh, you're at 17th. I think it needs to be closer to five. Okay, I, I know that there's a pretty heavy discussion. Can Oregon, you know, get inside the top five in recruiting? I think there might be, you know, occasional years where that's possible, but it incredibly likely and not not likely to happen, you know, year after year. So again, if they can be somewhere in that five to ten range, um, I would say this year it's probably a little bit closer, you know, to needing to get to five to kind of offset this you know, what, what is currently a number 17th ranked class, at least with on three, I know with, you know, 24, seven sports and on three kind of do their team rankings differently. Their formula is different. And I don't think one is right or wrong. 24 sevens kind of, we'll just say more of a cumulative points based system. And on three is more of like your average ranking. So you're not really, you're not rewarded for just signing 25 guys. If you're signing, you know, 19 really good guys, you're going to get, uh, you know, some uh, a little bit of a bump there, if that makes sense. So, mm-hmm. um, again, just making sure that you're somewhere in that five to ten range. Um, you know, for me, the other thing that I hate about the one thing I hate about team rankings is, and and there's no real way to quantify this. It's not reasonable, but you know, for instance, Oregon's 17th ranked class is probably hurt a little bit this year because of not signing a quarterback more times than not. If you're signing a quarterback, they're probably a four star, you know, top 200, top 150 player. You're getting a big bump there for signing that player. You know, Oregon doesn't have one. Bo Nix is a transfer. It doesn't apply there. Uh, You know, I think Oregon's going to get a good bump this year if they're able to secure a commitment from one of the, you know, two or three quarterbacks they have on their sites right now. All of them are, are top five ranked quarterbacks you know they're top 100 players that's going to help the class just on its own there so um you know those are some elements there uh you know and the reason i say this willie taggart came in and the year he was here and you know his recruiting class was inflated but he was taking a lot of receivers and guys that really you know weren't needed by oregon you were missing the offensive linemen and defensive linemen uh you know in those classes 
So again, you know, Coach Laning, just make sure you're filling holes. Uh, you know, obviously getting as good a talent as you can possibly get. And again, I I do think he's going to need to be somewhere in that five to seven, maybe five to eight range to really kind of offset the ranking of this class. Okay. Um, we're, we're in a, a, a neat little spot here in the podcast this week. We are expecting Scoop Duck beat reporter Jared Denny any minute now. Um, and we'll, we'll catch up with Jared, kind of run the gamut on maybe some football, his early impressions on Coach Lanning, some hoops, and, and the Dana Altman experience right now in Eugene. Maybe talk uh, about Kelly Graves and the ladies and, and kind of an up and down and up season that they've had going on. Um, but But while I have a minute to kill with you, Justin, I, I've been meaning to ask you, um, you're in the same boat as Jared in terms of Oregon has a new coach, and so you have a completely new relationship to build. How's that working along for you? Uh, you know, that's always um, a work in progress, right? You know, and, and uh, um, you know, so far, so good. You know, I think the, the new coaches are, are energetic you know, they're, they're go-getters. Um, it's pretty clear with what the staff was able to do in January and, and what I, not only just who they signed in 2022, but you know, the, the amount and talent level of the 23s, they were able to bring on that these guys are energetic. That's always, you know, good for guys like me to have those guys, you know, whether wanting a relationship or not, but they're out there, they're, they're, you know, they're prominent. I think uh, coach Lanning, you know, I personally haven't met him yet, but by all accounts, it's been, you know, he's made himself pretty available, um, very uh, relatable. And I think, you know, he will, you know, really embrace the Oregon media. So um, like you said, there's, you know, I don't, I don't know that he's really gotten to know all of the media guys yet. And and when that happens, it's kind of nice because whether you're a 10 year guy or a, you know, 10 month guy, you're kind of all on the same, you know, plane, if you will. Right. Um, and so I think for a guy like Jared specifically, he'll come on, you know, Jared's a little bit newer with me, um, you know, was covering Oregon state, but coming back to Oregon, uh, you know, with me on scoop duck. And I, I think that helps kind of level the playing field, you know, for a guy like him, there's not pre-existing relationships. These are all effectively new coaches to Oregon. Um, you know, so everybody kind of gets that same chance and, uh, so that's what I, I think, um, you know, obviously there were, there wasn't that many um, media opportunities in January because the coaches were just getting to town and recruiting and trying to move into their apartments and, and uh, you know, signing day came and went and basically everybody, you know, got their vacation time that they're probably only going to get for the rest of the year, <laughs> um, you know, so yeah, that, it's just kind of yeah. been that weird animal. But I think, uh, I think Jared, I know myself, I think, I think, and fans, people are looking forward to spring ball, right? I mean, it's kind of exciting again. We're going to see what this team looks like. We're going to, you know, get a, a chance to maybe hear about the defense and the changes there and the, and the offense and the changes there. And I, I know that really excites people because let's be, you know, ultimately, let's be frank, the offense was boring. It wasn't that fun to watch. There were some big plays. There were some mm-hmm. big moments here and there, but by and large, um, it just wasn't that fun of an offense to watch. And I think you know, fans are kind of excited to see that. Um, still going to need to win football games. That's the priority, of course. But <laughs> I guess, I guess, if you're having a little more, so those are some of the things. I know we were kind of riffing on the side there, but those are, I think, some of the elements that kind of come with that. Um, you know, with the coaching change and, and with the transition. Um, it, it, to me, just from social media, from the interaction on on Scoop Duck. I think fans are rejuvenated again. I think the Mario Cristobal era was a good era. He did a lot of great things for Oregon, mm-hmm. put this program in a better spot. I think ultimately those this last you know six months or last nine months, even though fans didn't have a relationship with Mario Cristobal, it felt like there was tension. You know, tension about within the team, tension with how he was talking to the media, tension with you know maybe how some of the games were being played out. Um, and so maybe this is just kind of one of those good, clean breakups, like, Hey, look, you know what? He's moved on and doing his thing and, and, you know, and, and gonna, you know, be back in Miami. Hey, we got this new coach, young guy, exciting, saying all the right things, recruiting well. Um, and that's something I wrote, something I wrote about over the weekend was, you know, if you think about it 
and it, it's hard to really put it in these terms. But if you think about it, you know, Oregon kind of went from the bloody, you know, to the Chip Kelly era, some really fun years of football, right? And then it kind of reset with Mark Helfrich, and I feel bad picking on him. We know it just didn't go well for, for Coach Helfrich, but it reset, you know, ultimately, which what got him, uh, you know, let go from the program. But if you think about it, from Coach Helfrich, every hire has kind of elevated the program after. So you, you get Willie Taggart that comes in, and maybe he only comes for a year, but guess what? He brings Mario Cristobal with him and some other guys, and they start recruiting, and all of a sudden we're like, hey, you actually can recruit to Oregon, right? And then Mario Cristobal comes in behind him and, you know, starts building out this program. And, and what I mean by that is you saw a bigger staff build out. You saw a bigger strength and conditioning staff. You saw all these different elements really grow and blossom under Mario Cristobal. And, of course, recruiting was, of course, elevated under Mario Cristobal. So you've kind of seen this progression, uh, you know, from coach to coach uh, since uh, Mark Helfrich. Uh, you know, Oregon getting better. So, you know, maybe if you, if Duck fans can, you know, remove Mario Cristobal from their mind and the angry feelings there, think about how he elevated the program and, and maybe get excited that, you know, Coach Lanning's here to, you know, take what Mario Cristobal built upon and take it to the next level. And all of those things keep getting you closer and closer to the end goal, which is, of course, a national championship. Yeah, yeah, I, I think you really, really aced that one just because, I, I know where we stand, we were, and I think remain, Mario Cristobal backers. I think he's a good coach. I think he's going to win a lot of games at Miami. And, and you know, I said it this way on social media the other day. If I had my pick between Lincoln Riley at USC and Mario Cristobal at Miami, and, and who's going to turn a, a former blue chip program around better and faster, I'm picking Mario Cristobal 10 times out of 10. Um, But all that said, all those compliments aside, I agree with you. I think there were there were moments the, the way that the hiring was handled, where he goes out to the media and says, nobody has talked to me. And he has a look on his face that that says, how dare you even ask me that question? Right. Um, And then the following weekend he's the next coach of the Miami Hurricanes I think that rubbed fans the wrong way I think that some of the quick in and out nature of his coaching staff where you hire a good coordinator but you put a lot of pressure and a lot of expectations on them and burn them out and they go elsewhere um, I think that rubbed fans the wrong way after a while and and then like you said I think some of the interactions with the media and, and I'm not talking about his stuff with James because I, I love James. I've told you before, um, James has a gift for getting under people's skins. Like like the, Dan Lanning is going to have the exact same rapport with James that Mario had. That's just what he does. Um, he gets under their skin. But I feel like Mario had eventually kind of that same energy for most of the media in, in most questions on those pressers. Yeah. Yeah, I, I just think that, it, you know, this new energy, it's 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 kind of a positive energy. I think it's exciting. I like, you know, the, the coaching hires he made. I mean, you know, Mario Cristobal had some really good staffs at Oregon, and this one blows him out of the water. You know, I think Dan Lanning, you know, absolutely nailed these hires. And, and you know, we, we did a coaching profile on Scoop Duck, and I, and I thought Charlie, uh, you know, named it correctly as, as you know, Tosh Lupoy is kind of the, the great white whale for Oregon. <laughs> football fans it's yeah. always been the guy that you've wanted to come to Oregon and right. you've hated him at every other school because he's pulling all the dudes you want and so you know he, he obviously went to Alabama and, and, and was untouchable there and then into the NFL and you know for for coach Lanning to lure him back I think you know that's I mean that's the cherry on top not to mention your head coach is one of the best defensive minds in the country if if coach Dillingham is even you know halfway uh, you know, halfway good at what he does, Oregon should be just fine. So, yeah, um, yeah and, 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 you know, they are lacking experience, and and, and I, I understand all that. But, I mean, you know, again, you're coming from that Kirby Smart tree, that Nick Saban tree, and the number one priority to both of them is talent acquisition, is get the dudes and figure out the rest later because it makes your job that much easier. And it's clear to me with the staff that he hired that they are all in on getting the dudes 
and figuring it out later. <laughs> so right. hopefully they figure it out. <laughs> yeah. No, you mentioned uh, two things. You mentioned Tosh. I remember when Mario was just a line coach for Willie Taggart. I remember Mario doing an interview. This is probably like uh, mid-season, say after like an Arizona game or a, or a Washington game. <laughs> um, he did a pregame interview with uh, the Ducks radio crew, and, and Joey Mack put a mic in his face. And I remember listening to that interview and thinking, wow, this guy sounds like a head coach, right? And and then fast forward, Mario Cristobal was a head coach. Um, well, fast forward to today, and I really enjoyed the uh, the signing day video stream that the the Go Ducks Facebook page and Go Ducks YouTube put together, and and Joey is on the mic with Tosh Lupoy, and out of all the assistant coaches, like I, I really enjoyed um, you know getting to meet uh, the special teams coach that, that Dan Lanning brought in, uh, a guy that's a, a Western Oregon alum with with Klamath Falls family ties and lots of Oregon ties, grew up in Oregon. Um, you know, there's some good coaches on this staff. I think I'm with you, the best assistant coach on this staff, and the guy that popped to me. Uh, more than anybody else on that staff, and the guy that screams, "I'm going to be a head coach someday," is Tosh Lupoy. Yeah, no, I agree with that, and i I think that I think fans are really um, underappreciating the Adrian Clemheyer because that's a guy that is the Phenomenal. Tosh Lupoy equivalent yeah. on the offensive side of the ball. He can recruit the offensive line as well as anybody, but he can also recruit outside that position. The one guy that's really kind of really really surprised me and i get this like you know i i get this very close you know to a dc type position it is matt pallage the safety coach uh, i know he carries a code dc title uh, as does tosh lupoy but you know pallage the way he recruited the way he closed out the class just kind of hearing him talk very much seems like a guy to me that's working his way up the ladder quickly um, and, and again, you know, as Oregon fans, I think we're now a little bit better conditioned, um, to kind of appreciate when these guys show up for a year two, maybe three at most and move on or up the ladder. If they're moving up the ladder, it means they did something really good at Oregon and you're in a better place for it. You go find the next guy. Um, you know, P- Pallage to me seems like a guy that we might only have for a year or two and somebody's going to hire him as a defensive coordinator. So again, um, you know, shoot, you got a guy like Drew Merringer, who's kind of a just kind of sitting there as a tight end coach, and he's been an offensive coordinator at a major program. So, um, you know, it, it, there, there's a lot of really good pieces there. Uh, and, and again, it, 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 it certainly appears that talent acquisition is not going to be a problem for Oregon. Right, right. And, um, and, and one last thing on the, the breadth of fresh air that you were talking about, uh, does it does it feel better? Like, I, I think it feels better, but I'd love to ask you. You, you have a, a better finger on the pulse of, of what the fans are, are feeling here. Does it feel better that you have a coach like Kenny Dillingham who says, we're going to play fast, we're going to spread the football, we're going to throw the football, we're going to attack, compared to, uh, I, I think, an effective way of winning football games that Mario Cristobal had, had schemed at Oregon over the past few years, but also a very conservative way. Does it does it feel better having an Oregon offense that's going to pass the football a little bit more? Oh, no question. I mean, folks are going to be, I mean, of course, number one is winning the games. You got to win the games. Um, I don't dispute that. I mean, that's always the, 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 the biggest stat from any football game is the final score, of course. Um, but I mean, uh, by and large, by and large, what I what I've seen and what I feel, and I and I don't mean this about any one particular coach, but it just from my experiences, the biggest detriment to a head coach uh, is their stubbornness, is their own ego, and and to me, you know, yes, I will say that Mario Cristobal was stubborn. Okay, he was very set in his ways. Now I get it, I understand it when you're the when you're the uh, you know when you're the head coach, when you're the CEO, and it's your job on the line, it's your ass on the line. You know, I understand that they're very alpha type and that they go hand in hand. You know, again, the other example I'll make, not just Mario Cristobal, is Chip Kelly. 
okay? Stubborn to an absolute fault. I mean, just can't get out of his own way. And I think that that is, just to back it up even more, one of the absolute most brilliant elements to Nick Saban is the fact that he is not stubborn to a fault. Sure, it's his way, but we've seen his offenses and defenses adapt, you know, over the last two, three, four, five years to continue to evolve with college football because he wants to remain on top. So to me, I guess for fans, maybe hearing, you know, Kenny Dillingham talk that way and realizing, hey, this guy's going to adapt. He's going to try new things out. He's not going to be, you know, again, it's almost like, you know, we we as fans were maybe almost getting to the point of it doesn't matter who Mario Cristobal hires at OC. You know, this offense is going to look the same. And, you know, at least now we're kind of hearing that Kenny Dillingham's going to have a different offense. And that's kind of exciting for everyone yeah yeah more than more than just kind of uh jared denny just jumped in if you're wondering where that sound effect came from that's my chromebook giving me the little ping notification telling me hey we got jared denny in the room with us so we'll switch gears and we will have a conversation with scoop ducks oregon beat writer the man the myth the legend jared denny He's Jared Denny, Oregon beat writer for Scoop Duck and on three, and uh, a friend of ours. We've had him on the pod a couple times in the past. Felt like it was a good time to bring him back. Uh, let's start here, Jared. Earlier, I-, I asked this question to Justin, and I'm interested where where you would answer this. You had a relationship with Mario Cristobal and Mario Cristobal's coaching staff and Mario Cristobal's locker room. But now some of those players move on to the draft or they transfer. Uh, Most of the coaches move on, including Mario Cristobal. And you have to build new relationships with new players and coaches. What's that process like for you? Yeah, it's interesting. And it's, I mean, in college football, it's always difficult because, of course, there's turnover. But even now in, in the kind of current recent college football landscape, it's even more difficult. And um to answer your question there i don't think there's an easy way to do it and um it's a little it, it's difficult building um, relationships over social media and building relationships over text and um especially with U of O, you never know when you're going to get in-person access until about 24 hours before so yeah. you sort of uh, and, and even then like that might be zoom calls these days so it's something that i think a lot of people in the industry are grappling with um how do you sort of build those personal relationships that the good beat reporters and over the past 10 years have built with their sources and with the people they cover on a daily basis. And it's something that Zoom makes almost impossible because how do you ask a follow-up question? How do you look somebody in the eye and sort of understand what they're telling you and get a better feel for them as a person? It's um, it's really, really hard to do. And um, to be honest, I, I haven't exactly found a good answer to it yet. When you talk about the, the 24 hours notice, I, I'm assuming you mean, and this is in the weeds, you know, one media guy to another, I assume you mean the emails the, the sports information department sends out? Yeah, absolutely. So I, th- I think the last time we got Dan Lanning was January 14th, that would have been. And we got an email like oh, that morning that Dan will be available <laughs> via Zoom at 3 p.m. Um, and you sort of hope that you don't have anything going that day or right. um, clear your schedule if you did have anything going and come up with a few good questions and hope you get your Zoom hand raised fast enough. It's really, um, it's a weird way to go about your work. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, um, yeah, I, I'll shut up after this one so so Justin can get some, some things in here. But I know for me personally, there are so many times where I will get those emails and just go, damn, like, like, I'm in Beaverton. I can't just drive down. I've got to plan my whole day if I if I drive down or I've got to stop everything I'm doing because there's a Zoom call coming up at two o'clock. And so I just can't be a part of it. And and I have to imagine for you that that has to feel tough, like you're almost tethered to the U of O campus. Yeah. And it, I mean, it trickles down to the readers after a while. Um, you, you can, it, I mean, it was hard enough sitting in a scrum and kind of trying to elbow your way up for a question. And um, now it's even more difficult and it just makes it so that I can get less interesting answers from players and coaches and it affects the, what we're able to write. So, I, I mean, it's not an excuse. It's what everybody's dealing with, but it right. just kind of makes for a worse overall product for everybody. And I'm really, really ready for zoom interviews to be a thing in the past. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's it's a lot less interesting. You know, like you said, it's more personable to be there. And if you're face to face, you know, the nice thing about, you know, pre-Zoom, uh, which a couple of years ago is, is you know, if you went to the, the practice scrum or whatever, there'd be, you know, four or five or six people available, a couple of coaches, several players, you know, you'd get the huge scrums around the, the two biggest coaches or whatever, maybe the biggest player, but you could kind of offside and go to, you know, talk to somebody that maybe just doesn't play enough or is a freshman or, you know, and, and kind of get an interesting story for them that, you know, basically isn't the same two stories regurgitated by everybody because that's all that's available. So right. hopefully, uh, I don't know, I guess the, the, the indoor mask mandates, you know, going away. So maybe that means they'll be able to do stuff outside again for spring and, and fall football. Yeah. And not like Matt said, not to get too into the weeds, but it, it is interesting when you, like Justin said, you have, I mean, six players staying there and you find the one that nobody's talking to. That's the guy that I want to talk to. That's who's going to tell me the most interesting story of that day more than likely. And I mean, those guys like Brandon Dorless is one of the best talkers on the team. He, the guy just loves to laugh and have a good time. And every time um, there's a Brandon Dorless scrum, I come away with a really good story. because He's a really good talker. And, when you when you lose that access it just really affects the way that you can kind of tell stories about this team and um, kind of give people who are interested in reading and watching content interesting things to learn about players and i think that i don't know from a overall pr standpoint it's not exactly the greatest move for a football program to limit how much um fans get to see and learn about their athletes if that makes sense no doubt Hey, um, I, I've had this question on my mind for a long time. You know, you, you were a baseball beat writer, uh, Major League Baseball, for uh, for a few years before you jumped back into the college sports scene, first with Oregon State, now with the Ducks. Is this easier for you? Do you like this more than when you were covering baseball? A lot of people hate the baseball way of um, covering a team, which is basically clubhouse opens two hours before first pitch, and right. you show up and whoever's there and wants to talk that day you can grab and it's really cool because if i mean i was covering the twins if i wanted to write a brian dozier story then i could just go up to brian dozier and ask him kind of what i was thinking and um if he's in a good mood that day then he'll give me a great answer if he's not doesn't want to talk then like oh you're not getting brian dozier um (laughs) and and i really liked that um a lot of people hate that idea. Um, I think Jeff Perlman one time compared it to like you're standing in somebody's living room, essentially, and you're just waiting for guys to um, kind of not be busy or not be getting dressed or not be doing anything so you can go up and bother them for 30 seconds and hope that they answer the stupid questions that you have. Um, but I at least liked having the opportunity to ask whatever I wanted to ask, whereas with Oregon, especially Oregon, I, kn- I know that some programs are different, Um you don't necessarily like we went almost the whole year without talking to Noah Sewell. And I know there's people that would love wow. to hear what Noah Sewell has to say, but wow. you request him every week and you don't get him, And that's that. So <laughs> it's, it's a lot more frustrating in that sense. Uh, obviously I know, you know, as the weeks move on, we'll have a lot of time to get into football. Um, but right now basketball is kind of dominating uh, both men's and women's. Um, I guess maybe let's just go ahead and start with the men for now. Um, let's talk about the last week for the men, Jared, you know, what's, what's going right, what's going wrong and, and what's kind of the, uh, the outlook for the men this coming week here. Yeah. They finally kind of break that little Colorado curses as they called it last week. And I, I mean, we'll be honest, Colorado missing its coach and not exactly at full firepower that helped quite a bit, but Oregon looked a lot better than when they played him in Eugene and, um, really handled business. And then I know the Utah game was a little closer than people would have liked, but hey, those are the games that you have to win this time of year. And um, those are games that, I mean, in December, it looked like Oregon wasn't going to win. So they're, I mean, their net rankings up. They get, received a couple of votes in the AP poll this week. They're just in much better shape than they were a few weeks ago. And after that Colorado loss, people were kind of panicking. And um, it's going to be an interesting couple of weeks. I still don't know where I'm at with this team. I want to believe that there's a really good team in here somewhere that can make a deep tournament run and, I guess it would be kind of foolish to bet against that with what Dana's done in the past, but it's just always kind of two steps forward, one step back, or one step forward, two steps back. Um, every time it seems like they've kind of found that defensive breakthrough, then they have something like the Colorado game where they look totally, the first Colorado game in Eugene, that is, where they look totally right. disengaged and look like they don't want to play any defense. So um, I don't know how late in a season a team can really wait to reveal its identity and reveal what it's going to be all about but i think we're going to see it here soon with oregon what is uh 
obviously winning is the most important element, but what is the, what is the key for, for the men to kind of take, what, what's the, what's the kind of the missing element, the missing, the missing sauce, if you will, that kind of takes them from the, okay, you're right here to, okay, yeah, you guys are good. Or, you know, I mean, is it, is it three point shooting? Is it defense? Is it rebounding? What, what needs to hit for Oregon to, to take that next step? I think it's a lot of the things you just mentioned, but a lot of it is just the play of the bigs and like what version of Infali Dante are you getting on a nightly basis? And after the Oregon State game, I think it was maybe the be- his best game of the year. And in the first half, half especially, he was just all over the place on both ends of the floor. He was blocking shots. He was doing a lot of rim running. He was running the floor. He was playing even when he wasn't blocking shots. He was um, getting in the lane and being really disruptive and making difficult making passes difficult. Um, and I think that's kind of what Duck fans and probably what Dana Altman's been waiting to see from him for a really long time. And I know that um, this isn't necessarily a criticism. Like he came back from a really tough injury and um, he's kind of played his way into shape and it's never an easy thing to do. But I think this Oregon team is going to go as far as sort of he can take them. Not from a, I mean, obviously Will Richardson's the leading scorer. He's going to carry the scoring load, but they need Dante to be that really physical, really um, just kind of constant defensive presence because when he's not, then, it's, it's been a really big issue for them. I know they can run on some smaller lineups, but you're going to have to have him out there and playing well at some point. And that's what I'm, I think I'm kind of hoping to see out of them in the next few weeks. I strongly agree with you there. No, I, I think, I think about the loss to USC in the tournament last year and how they just got torched because they didn't have a big guy. And then I think about like the way they played against Oregon state earlier this year, uh, the way they played obviously against UCLA on national television. Um, when Infali Dante plays at the best of his ability, to me this is the Kenny Wooten Ducks mixed with the the Pritchard era that, that comes after that of you have a team that has that enforcer down low and he can clean the glass and he can block shots and and you you can't just force it inside and have a size mismatch on the ducks like USC did last year um, but then also the team around him is so sharp with their outside shooting with their with their defense on the perimeter if if they fix that one hole you know get a, get a really consistent effective play from Infali Dante inside i think that could be the best team in the Pac12 yeah, I agree. And he doesn't have to be Jordan Bell, and he doesn't have to be Chris Boucher. You don't have right. to lead the Pac-12 in blocks. But, I mean, Dana was kind of on him to us after the last Oregon State game. Like, he wants him to block more shots, and he wants him to attempt to block more shots. And how many coaches do you hear say that? When uh, I mean, usually it's the opposite problem. You don't want mm-hmm. your big guy getting into foul trouble because he's chasing blocks. But with Dante, you want to see him be more aggressive because he is a really gifted shot blocker, and he has the athleticism to do that without getting himself into foul trouble and so i think i mean i think it can happen i think honestly and i think you hit it right on the head they could be the best team in the pac-12 if they get the best version of him on a consistent basis so switching gears a little bit uh women um i guess maybe even a bigger enigma if you will with kelly graves and and kind of the up and down of their season um you know what was the last week like for the women uh, and, and where have they struggled to kind of maybe find that, you know, consistent level of play as well? Yeah, I, I don't want to diminish how kind of damaging that weekend sweep at Arizona was, but it, I'm going to be honest, I'm not, it, I'd never expected them to win that Arizona game. A lot of teams are going to go into the McHale Center this year and look really, really bad because that's a tough place to play. And this Arizona team is really, really good. And or I know Oregon got them at overtime in Eugene, but man, they're one of the best teams in the country. And I don't think that you can necessarily knock the Ducks for, I mean, yes, it, you would have, you'd like to see it be a little bit closer, but that the other factor here is the team is just so beat up right now. And Yara Sabley is just not even practicing anymore. She just plays games and rests and you hope that her knees and her legs and everything else that's injured. She hurt her back the other day, like just all holds up. And it's a bummer for them because she's one of the best players in the country and they're they really, really need her to be full go. And um, when you see kind of the way the injuries were affecting her in that Sunday game at Arizona State, um, it's just clear that she's not 100%, and she's probably far, far below that. And there are a lot of talented bigs behind her, but it's just a really different team when she's not on the floor. And, I mean, Tahina Pow Pow is a, a great player, one of the best guards in the Pac-12, and she's just kind of hit a rough patch right now. And when you have that many things kind of all going wrong at once, it's, it's not going to go well. And um, I think... 
with this Oregon women's team right now, it's almost an issue of there's too many good, gifted offensive players to get all the touches they deserve. And I, I don't want to call it an identity crisis because that might be a bridge too far, but I just think there's a little bit of um, trying to figure out how to get everybody their best spots and get them the looks they need to sort of be able to help this team succeed. And I, th- I think it's still going to be a work in progress. I mean, this team, Niar Sabley and India Rogers and Tina Pow Pow were all injured until the first week of January. So they've played them. They've played their way back into shape and it's not, it's a lot easier or a lot harder, I should say, than I think people realize to kind of build that chemistry on the fly when you're playing two or three games a week and not practicing. And it's something where I think, Hopefully, ideally, by the end of February or early March, they're going to look like a much different team. And, and you saw it for a while. They beat Arizona, Arizona and UConn in a span of 48 hours. Those are two top 10 teams. So there's a really, really good team um, in here somewhere. I just don't know how often we're going to see it at full power in the next few weeks. What's it, uh, what's it going to take for you to <clears throat> you know, be convinced that this team is – is you know is ready for the tournament ready to compete in the tournament obviously they got to get healthy i understand that everybody understands that but what what's going to need to click for this team to kind of take what we'll just kind of call is that next step as well honestly it's just being more consistent with the three-point shooting with which with this team i thought was going to be the last thing i would worry about but they played <laughs> they played better defense recently um the shots just aren't really falling to you know has been sort of cold. India Rogers is hit and miss. She, she started slow a few times and then grown into the game later. Sydney Parrish isn't getting as many looks as she was in January when she was kind of running the show with everybody out. Maddie Shear definitely is capable of contributing a lot more offensively, and she's been brilliant defensively. She's probably one of the best defensive players in the conference, but she's just, there just aren't enough touches to go around right now. So it's just finding a way to get everybody in rhythm and get the shots that they want and not have so many kind of like late shot clock dribbling trying to find a shot situations as you saw during the arizona road trip and i think it's a very fixable thing and i think it's something that kelly graves is i mean if we're aware of it he's aware of it um it's it's something they're going to clean up it's just it's it's almost a good problem to have just having this many scorers who need touches um men and women uh i'm not gonna i'm not gonna go away too far in the weeds here just because we I know we haven't really kind of geared up for it yet, but what's just on the fly, you know, baseball, softball kind of ramping up, what what should fans kind of expect there in the next uh, couple of weeks with those two programs? Yeah, the softball team is obviously in a re- really, really good place. And I'll be honest, I haven't really um, dug into that team at this point yet. That's um, definitely not my beat expertise at this point, but um, there's obviously just so much talent returning on that roster that, I think people are going to be really excited about it, and I'm looking forward to kind of learning more about them and digging into that in the next week or two. And then with baseball, I mean, you lose so many good players, Kenny on Yovan and all those guys just headed for the draft. Um, it's going to be interesting to see how they replace them and see how Waz is. I mean, I think he's recruited really well on some of the names that they have coming in. Um, Walsh particularly is going to be, I think, sort of the linchpin of that lineup if I um, had to guess. It's going to be interesting, but it's going to be a lot different than the team that people saw at PK Park against LSU in that final game last year. And um, I think they're going to need, I mean, you're replacing your Friday, Saturday, Sunday starters. It's never going to be easy, but mm-hmm. there's, there's a lot of talent and there's a lot um, of local kind of homegrown talent, which is something that I think people should be excited about because in five, 10 years ago, Oregon State was getting all those kids. And I remember I, um, when I was working in Corvallis, I wrote a profile on a player at Crescent Valley High School named Taylor Holder, who's now kind of an outfield pitcher hybrid for the Ducks. And um, the whole time he was just saying, oh, yeah, Oregon's my dream school. Oregon's my dream school. Like, that's where I wanted to go. And I'm like, you're a Corvallis kid who didn't want to go to Oregon State. Like, that, that's kind of a testament to what was is building in Eugene and just kind of how exciting that program is right now. Yeah, yeah. I, I think you hit the nail on the head there. Um, you know, I, I've, I've gotten to know a lot of great uh, high school baseball players in our state, high school softball players as well, to a lesser extent, over the years uh, on the uh, high school beat. And it, it really so many kids want to go to Oregon state and it's, it's not, um, it's not that, you know, just the facilities are amazing. It's, it's Goss stadium. It's the fan base. It's the tradition, three national championships, all those PAC 12 titles. Um, and the fact that you have kids now 
with Waz, and I, I agree with you, I think he's recruiting Oregon really well and really strongly, which makes a huge difference in that sport because there is a lot of uh, baseball talent out of Oregon, more than you might think. Um, you know, he's he's recruiting those kids and getting them to go, wow, I get to, to play at PK Park, which I think is a better facility than Goss, or, or say, wow, I get to uh, live in Eugene. I get to go to Oregon, right? I get to wear the uniforms. Um, the fact that it's, it's not an afterthought anymore, like Oregon can actually recruit some of these guys, is amazing. It is, and I know that you and I have had plenty of conversations about Jacob Melton, yeah. a Southern Oregon kid who ended up in yeah, Oregon yeah. State, and I think, for my money, is probably the best baseball player in the Pac-12. He's incredible, um, and he was very lightly recruited and actually came to or went to Oregon State from a JUCO. There, it just kind of shows you, like, there's a lot of good baseball talent kind of under the radar in Oregon, especially Southern Oregon. Um, I don't have to tell you guys that, but I think you're going to see it start kind of coming to light in Eugene with Waz. Well, and I, I, you know, I, I follow baseball from afar. I'll admit that, but I, I do recall, um, you know, that one of the elements that kind of made that Oregon State run and, and their success so exciting for for people from the state of Oregon is how many players they had from the state on their roster. You know, it was almost like a, you know, Oregon All Stars dream team, if, if you will. So, you know, it, it's kind of exciting to think about, you know, Oregon building a team with several in-state guys on it. Because, let's face it, football basketball oh, baseball, yeah. doesn't matter oh, yeah. what the sport people love having the in-state guys you know on their teams to cheer for it just makes it that much uh you know more exciting so um uh, no good stuff there jared um i know that we plan on having you on more in the future this was kind of a introduction with you on the podcast and and the plan will be to have you more of a mainstay but um you know thanks for your time today and and uh Obviously, I don't know what kind, what kind of stuff do you have coming down the mix for, for fans to check out this week from, from you on Scoop Duck. Yeah, it's another really heavy basketball week, as it will be for the next month or so. Um, and um, between myself and Jacob Archer and Charlie Folkstead, we'll have, have a ton of great coverage on that. And then I'm going to start a series um, here that will probably start publishing tomorrow that's just kind of a position-by-position position look for Oregon football at um, – kind of the areas that each position needs to address who some potential breakout stars are so i'm really excited to get that going and um yeah we'll have that up probably early wednesday morning perfect perfect well matt i don't know if you have anything else but i think uh i mean i think that's everything that i had on the docket for today yeah yeah i'm, I'm right there with you my notes are done jared i really appreciate this conversation i i always learn a lot when when i talk to you when we talk to you and i know these listeners learned a ton as well Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate you guys. Okay. Well, I'll wrap the podcast here then and, and just remind everybody um, we're, we're thankful for your help and your support and your time as a listener. If you ever have any issues with the pod, like you can't find it on whatever app you want to use, I know we run into that from time to time, um, reach out. He's at SD on Twitter. I'm at Bagley Sports. And uh, I think we both use our full names on the Scoop Duck site. So Justin Hopkins and Matt Bagley, if you want to leave us a message there, you can find us. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. And go Ducks.